0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K E Y S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: Uh,
2: In terms of the new definition of success, I mean, I think at, at its most basic, we have, you know, previously defined the American dream as one individual, you know, creating wealth. And usually we define that monetarily for themselves and their family. So this is, you know, everything from the white picket fence and all of your, you know, needs are met within it, um, to, you know, having a job that has a very clear trajectory, you know, straight up the ladder, uh, and you know, that, that you get all the glory and it's all about your individual hard work and giftedness. Right. And so I think what I'm trying to argue for is, kind of breaking apart that whole idea that success is an individual pursuit and instead thinking of success as an interdependent pursuit, that it's about the quality of life you can create by doing work that you find meaningful, that allows you to earn enough money by creating community around you, whether that's physically where you live or in co-working spaces, but really having this sense that your wealth is is most uh you know, accurately expressed through your relationships that the, the more people that you have deep, genuine, and even daily relationships with, the safer you'll be, and probably the healthier and happier you'll be too.
6: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're
0: always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
3: Courtney, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Yeah,
3: it is really cool to have you here. You know, I came across you by way of our mutual friend, Sarah Peck, who has been a consistent referral source for amazing guests. Um, Every single person she's interviewed has just blown my mind. And then, you know, shortly after that, I came across your TED Talk uh, about reinventing the American dream. And then I happened to be walking through Barnes and Noble and stumbled up on your book, The New Better Off, uh, and pretty much, you know, devoured it. it. It's been one of those books to me that was one of the most important books that I've read this year. So it's really cool to have you here. It's
2: such an honor. Thank you. And I'm I'm especially excited that you stumbled on the book because you know, this, I have written other books and my mom consistently would go into Barnes and Nobles and reshelve the book on the <laughs> fancy front tables that you had to, you know, pay a lot of money for. So I'm very excited that I've reached a, a point in my career where people do stumble on my book on a table somewhere in Barnes and Noble.
3: Yeah, well, you know, I think it, it's fitting for you to, to mention your mom because my, my first question was going to be, um, you know, what is your what did your parents do for a living and how did that end up impacting the choices that you've ended up making with your life and your career?
2: Well, interestingly, my mom is, I now understand it uh, as basically just an absolute expert in building community, which of course is funny because the book ultimately, you know, I say the cliff notes of the book is create community, that that's where people's joy and health and, and wealth comes from. But growing up, I I didn't really know how to even understand my mom's career because it was so random. Um, she was trained as a, a social worker. So she had an MSW and she started her career actually doing a lot of work in, um, in aging homes for aging people. And she apparently caused a lot of trouble because she would like take them out to drink alcohol and have (laughs) awesome adventures. Um, So there was her first moment of sort of creating um, rebellious community, I guess you could say. And then After we were born, my brother and I I have an older brother, um, her career started to get more complicated because she was, you know, raising us and then doing kind of more freelance stuff. So she did a huge combination of things. But the most um, sort of well-known and I think influential thing for me was that she started something called the Rocky Mountain Women's Film Festival, which is in Colorado Springs, Colorado, where I grew up. And it's now the longest running women's film festival in the world. And she started it with a friend. They knew nothing about film festivals. They'd never made a film. But my mom had gone to a film festival and her instinct was that it was the most effective way to bring a huge amount of diversity of perspective to a, what was a very conservative um and sort of narrow hometown, Colorado Springs. So she and this friend decided, okay, this is going to be our way of trying to, you know, raise our kids with more diversity and, and just sort of introduce a wider range of perspectives to this town. And so it's still going today. And I grew up watching um, documentary films made by and about women Um, while, you know, other kids are watching cartoons. I was watching like, you know, obscure, strange documentaries. I think, you know, my love of story was really born in that experience Um, My dad, interestingly, is a bankruptcy lawyer. Um, I mentioned that in the TED Talk because... He grew up in a very poor family that was constantly going bankrupt. So it's like, you know, pretty clear psychological line you can draw there that he himself became a bankruptcy lawyer. Um, And so he, growing up, had a much more traditional job, um, as I witnessed it, um, you know, came home from work and took off his fancy shoes and pressed his suit. And um, when I was little, I actually said to him, I want to be a lawyer when I grow up. And so he took me to work. He sat me in the corner and this was in the 80s. So there wasn't as much email. And he just made me watch him talk on the phone all day long. And it was so boring. And he (laughs) said, this is what being a lawyer is actually about. It's not, you know, the exciting courtroom dramas and the big battles of justice um, that, you know, are sort of the the cinematic version of being a lawyer is I want you to have a realistic idea. He said, if you do still want to be a lawyer, like I will help you become one. But I wanted you to know what it was really like, and I never again had the the inclination, which was very helpful in you know college when everyone is freaking out about what they're going to do with their lives and applies to law school because I'm sure I would have been one of those people. Um, so I really learned community and a love of story from my mom. I think my dad, I really learned. Although, you know, his actual day to day didn't feel filled with this, this sense of justice, he's an incredibly sort of moral and convicted person. And he, um, the most joy he found in his own work was when he was able to save people's jobs, which was often a part of the bankruptcy cases he would be a part of would be like big companies going bankrupt. And how do you figure out how to protect the workers and that kind of thing. So I think that seed from him, um, has influenced me a lot too. Mm
3: -hmm. You know, I think one of the most interesting things about that was you said your mom knew nothing about film festivals and decided to start one. And, uh, you know, to me, that that sort of instinct to start and the instinct to produce, even when you know nothing about the thing that you're producing, I think, is really kind of the heart of, of creative endeavors. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, why you think it is that people don't have that or are afraid to embrace that?
2: It's a great question. Um, you know, I think it's sometimes hard to tell, you know... On the one hand, we have a, a, a sort of culture of admiring expertise, this notion that, you know, you have to really ground yourself in a lot of experience and education and that kind of thing to become someone who's a respected expert and can speak to something or, or create something that's worth paying attention to. Um, but on the other hand, I think we live in a time of, of kind of beginner's mind, to put it in a Buddhist way. And, you know, podcasts are the best possible example, I think, of, of something that so many people are learning how to do um, on their own and, and just creating incredible resources and incredible places for thinking and talking um, set, you know, which is what you're doing. So like case in point. Um, But I think, you know, there's that sense of, of wanting from an individual's perspective. I think there's a sense of wanting to know when is this something that beginner's mind is actually useful and maybe even better in some cases to be able to just jump in and try something and when am I going to look foolish when is it that I really do need some grounding in in sort of a historical perspective or certain kind of mastery over certain kinds of skills I mean I think that's what comes up for me when I want to try something new is is trying to differentiate between those things and not get too mired in training such that you can't you know leap with two feet but also not being the person who Um, shows up and seems kind of ignorant of a history that you might be a part of or um, skills that might actually make something worth experiencing for other people, you know? Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah. I I think there's a sort of really interesting paradox of expertise, which, you know, I was just speaking with the founder of Fast Company and he was telling me about this. You know, sometimes we become so mired in our own expertise that it actually gets in the way of our ability to try things. And, you know, you get to this point like where you have so much more to lose and suddenly you're not willing to take the same creative risks that you were in the beginning. I know that I've seen this in my own behavior with my own writing process and some of the things that I've been willing to try as my platform has grown. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. How did you, did you learn podcasting from anyone or did you just create it yourself? Yeah,
3: not at all. Um, Strangely enough, I don't even listen to that many podcasts.
2: That's funny. Yeah. I mean, I think it it is interesting to think about the ways in which, I don't know, I just think there's like no better example right now in our culture than podcasts of of a, a medium that people are jumping into without a lot of training and creating such worthwhile stuff. So it seems like a A good example, and you know, people are bringing other kinds of expertise to that medium. Obviously, Um, so I guess in that sense, they are you know trained Mm -hmm. and experienced. But I think the the medium itself feels like such a cool DIY space.
3: So walk me through the journey of uh, not deciding to be a lawyer, college, and how you end up doing uh, the work that you're doing.
2: So I went to Barnard College, which is an all-women's part of Columbia University in New York City. I grew up in Colorado Springs, Colorado. My parents both went to um, the Colorado State University, so small, kind of local school. Um, but I had read in most of the bios and the books that I appreciated that all these pe- people, for whatever reason, all of these writers lived in this place called Brooklyn. <laughs> I lived in this place called New York, so I was like, oh, I guess that's where you go if you want to be a writer. Um, and I wanted to be a writer from a very young age, actually. Um, so with a lot of ignorance, I ended up in New York um, and kind of way in over my head at first, getting used to such a huge cultural difference. Um, and and also, it turns out, even though I made the choice from a pretty ignorant place, made an amazing choice because Barnard is filled with a legacy of incredible writers. Um, you know, people like Jhumpa Lahiri, um, Erica Jong... Edwidge Dandy Cat, like all these awesome um, writers went there. And so the school is really proud of that and really invests in writing. Um, so I was on the high school, I mean, the high school newspaper and then the college newspaper, um, both the Barnard one and the Columbia one. And I was a political science major, so I was always really pursuing, um, you know, my sort of convictions around justice and, um, and, and thinking a lot about politics and that kind of thing, but also had this literary side. I didn't love, you know, sitting in English classes discussing books because I felt like most of the time people were just trying to sound smart and that bugged me. I, I loved to read books and enjoy the hell out of them, but I didn't really want to, you know, prove that my analysis was so much more intelligent than anyone else's, which is kind of how I felt like most English classes went. So I was kind of a weirdo in the sense that I was in political science, but really a writer at heart. Um, And then when I was graduating, I still wanted to be a writer, but I wasn't uh, convinced that I could make a living doing it. I didn't know any writers, um, you know, that no one was a writer in my family. So I thought, you know, I'm going to do something really practical that and still pursue this writing thing, but I'm not going to put all my eggs in that basket. So I went to grad school and created a master's at a school called Gallatin at NYU and the master's was, I called it writing and social change. So I took, you know, everything from grant writing, like very technical kind of writing to, um, you know, much more sort of lofty journalistic, uh, you know, I took a class called the journalism of ideas, you know, that was all about like, how do you, um, think about really big things and write about them and, and get them out into the world. So I was still kind of hedging my bets, um, and started freelancing while I was in grad school. And then it was just sort of like, to my utter shock, I ended up making a living as a writer, um, and a modest living, but, um, I lived at a pretty modest level and was able to write. I sold my first book when I was 25. Um, so it was, you know, sort of the rest was history, but I, I still remain shocked that I'm actually make a living as a writer again, as modest as it is. Um, I didn't sort of come in with that expectation, but I'm so grateful that I get to do what I love.
3: so how did that lead to on being
2: on being well I I had listened to on being Krista Tippett's podcast quite a bit and just fell in love with it I mean it felt to me like this home for all of these questions that I was asking including at different points I thought maybe I should go to divinity school because I'm really interested in these deep questions about kind of why we do what we do and how do we think ethically about who we are and and morally about who we are but then I you know would investigate that path a little a little bit and realize you know I really don't want to sit through two semesters of like the history of the bible or something so this is clearly not where I'm supposed to be I have to figure out a different place to ask these questions and really Krista Tippett's show was that place for me as a listener um it's just you know like your podcast it's so generous in timing it's, you know, and, and in sort of the exchange, I just find her, her authenticity and the nature of her questions so provocative and the quality of the guests she would bring on. So anyway, I had this moment, um, I was at a conference and I had turned to a friend of mine cause I knew Krista Tippett was there and I turned to a friend of mine and I was like, you know, I never talked to, you know, famous people and in, in my world, Krista is famous. Um, because I always think, like, what am I going to say that they haven't heard 10 million times before? I don't want to be that annoying kind of groupy character. And I said, but if I meet Krista Tippett at this conference, I'm going to tell her how much her podcast meets me. And I was kind of blathering on and on. And all of a sudden, my friend makes this like really funny face at me. And I turn around and realize Krista is right next to me. And she's heard me blathering on and on. And she was so gracious about it. She just said, hi, I'm Krista. And I said, I'm Courtney. Obviously, I don't need to say all those things because you just heard them. And now I feel like the biggest nerd in the world. Um, but it was awesome. It was such a funny way to meet and a friendship a true genuine friendship blossomed from there where I was out in Minnesota for something and which is where she lives in Minneapolis. And she had me over for lasagna and I met her daughter and it was just one of those, you know, totally wonderful, genuine connections. And so when uh, they decided they wanted to build out the website and create more of sort of a multimedia project out of on being, as opposed to just the podcast alone, um, Trent Gillis, who's the, uh, editor there and just an incredible human being also, um, he reached out and asked if I'd be interested in doing a column. So that's how it all kind of came together.
3: So what have you learned about craft and and creativity and, uh, success from, uh, being up close and personal with somebody like her?
2: I have learned, well, I think one of the things is, is to, and you know, I hope this is what I'm doing with this book is to really trust your own instincts about your own burning questions and to trust that other people in the world have those questions, even if there's not a super clear conversation happening about it. Um, You know, I think I've spent a lot of time in the media world thinking about kind of how do you sell an idea to someone. And um, I've done some work with an organization called the Op-Ed Project where we teach people Um, And particularly women and people of color who are less likely to be a part of these kind of important conversations in the world. We teach them to when you're pitching a story, you have to say, why now? So what? Why me? So you really have to, like, prove to the gatekeeper, you know, the editor, the producer, whoever it is, that this is an idea that needs to be out in the world. So I think I've spent a lot of time trying to think so strategically about how to, you know, sell my ideas and I think the cool thing about Krista is she teaches me this whole different thing, which is not worrying so much about selling your idea, but just trusting your instincts about the kinds of questions you're asking. And that other people are asking those questions and just create great conversations, you know, go out and ask those questions in community or with, you know, one or two other people. And that... The people who need to hear you asking those questions—they're going to find you. Um, I think that's such a case with On Being, where it has this incredible listenership and readership. Um, and these are people who needed that space. They're people like me who maybe thought they needed to apply to divinity school, or you know, were unsatisfied with the their own religious institutions, or you know, hungry for a community of searchers um, and people who wanted meaning. And so she just created this thing. The other really amazing thing about Krista that is more businessy and less about what on being is itself is that she broke from American public media to create her own media company. Uh, and that was just a few years ago. And I think it was a very brave move for her. She didn't know anything about, you know, owning her own business, but she knew that to have the creative control she wanted to have, she needed to do that. And so she, you know, getting back to our earlier conversation, did something that was hard and that she felt like a beginner at, um, and I think especially you know the older you are the harder it gets in many ways to do that but she she just did it and I think she's thriving and the organization is thriving they have the most like gorgeous headquarters in Minneapolis um, that they put a lot of thought into designing to nurture everyone's creativity there and so I just, I really admire the leader that she is internal to the organization, as well as the voice she is out in the world.
3: Well, let's do this. Um, let's get into the book. And I want to start by asking, you know, what what planted the seed for this whole idea of reinventing the American dream?
2: The seed was really planted by the moment, you know, as the economy was crashing, I was in my late 20s and starting to really think about my, you know, quote unquote, adult life. Um, you know, who am I going to partner with? Am I going to have kids? Where am I going to live? Is this really what I'm going to do for a living? How much money do I need? You know, sort of asking all these questions. And as I'm personally asking all these questions, there's this big economic and political shakeup um, with the the crash. And so I think for me, it was that convergence of the personal and political that made me wonder, you know, how do we define success now? And are we of worshiping at the right gods, um, when we think about fancy jobs, high status, big houses, you know, all these things that I'd grown up around, um, both literally, and in terms of kind of cultural narratives. And, and I just didn't feel satisfied with with that image. I also felt like, you know, there are ways in which some of the wealthiest people I've known are the least happy, which sounds so obvious, but I think we kind of say that in passing, and then we don't actually interrogate what that means about for those of us who are not particularly wealthy, but what does that mean about money? What does that mean about, you know, what we build our lives around and the choices we make. And so it was, you know, I always write the book I need to read, basically. And I just felt like, okay, I need to ask these questions in kind of a larger context and see if there are other people who are also asking some of these questions. And also, you know, anecdotally, I was just surrounded by people making really interesting choices and I felt like I was kind of connecting the dots on a lot of that and thinking there's something bigger going on here that's not just these individual people's choices I think there's kind of a new wave of um of redefinition around success hmm
3: so I guess, you know, how do you define what the, the new American dream looks like? Um, and then I'd love to, to go sort of in depth into each section of the book. You know, you, know, you talked about places that caught my attention, you know, financial decisions, um, the, the you know, area on attention and kind of the world we live in, which, which seems to be uh, more and more le- leaning towards a short attention supply. And then the ideas of ownership, community and ritual and, and how all these things impact our lives.
2: Yeah, so and now I'm blanking on what the beginning of that sentence was. Oh, oh so the new definition of success. Yeah. Right? Um Yeah, which just speaks to how wide ranging this book is. And there were times when I was like, Oh my gosh, what am I doing? But um, I've actually found that readers have been really loving the wide range. I think there are, you know, so many books on, you know, on attention or on ritual or on work, and they're sort of siloed, and so Uh, Even though at times I made myself a little crazy and thought, you know, am I trying to pack too much into this book? I actually am feeling really good about the response of readers who say, no, I want this contextualized and it's kind of connected together as opposed to seeing this in silos. So anyway, um, uh, in terms of the new definition of success, I mean, I think at, at its most basic, we have, you know, previously defined the American dream as one individual, you know, creating wealth and usually we define that monetarily for themselves and their family. So this is, you know, everything from the white picket fence and all of your you know, needs are met within it um, to, you know, having a job that has a very clear trajectory, you know, straight up the ladder uh, and, you know, that, that you get all the glory and it's all about your individual hard work and giftedness, right? And so I think what I'm trying to argue for is kind of breaking apart that whole idea that success is an individual pursuit, and instead thinking of success as an interdependent pursuit, that it's about the quality of life you can create by doing work that you find meaningful, that allows you to earn enough money by creating community around you, whether that's physically where you live or in co-working spaces, but really having this sense that your wealth is is most uh, you know accurately expressed through your relationships. That the the more people that you have deep, genuine, and even daily relationships with, the safer you'll be, and probably the healthier and happier you'll be too.
3: Wow. Right. Well, let's let's start with financial decisions, because I think this is really kind of one of the, the things that it really challenges most people when it comes to meaningful work. You know, as somebody who graduated from business school with a mountain of student debt and just said to fuck it, fuck it, I'll just pay them, you know, minimum. Uh, I, I'm sure I probably haven't made the, you know, like it wouldn't be considered the wisest choice, but I also get to do the work that I do because of that. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm really curious kind of, you know, what you have found have been some of the interesting financial decisions that you've seen people make, uh, you know, in the process of reinventing their own version of the American dream.
2: Well, first, I just want to say I love you using your own example because the thing I hear over and over when people – first of all, it's very hard to find people who will talk about money. So that's a funny thing is like trying to get anyone – You know, people will often lament not having enough money, trying to get people to talk about either financial choices that they think are, are folly, because that's kind of the larger cultural narrative, like the one you just said, or talking about choices they've made to not make more money. It's just, it's very difficult to get people to talk about it. It's so taboo, interestingly, but I love what you expressed because it's really representative of when I did find people who would talk about these kinds of decisions, which, you know, the larger culture might call downwardly mobile or something, right? Like not choosing the safer, more statusy job. Um, there's just this tremendous sense of liberation that you hear in people's voice. You know, it's like this freedom when you finally say, "You know what? I'm not going to let these choices around money guide my, tr- you know, guide my life." It's like people just feel so freed up. It's like you just get to shed this. Um, thing that, that can really push you to live in a daily way that makes you miserable. So I'll say that, that it just, it's amazing to hear the kind of liberation people feel by not choosing to make choices only based on how much money they make. Um, and then I'll also say, which I think is obvious, but I, it, I still say it because it needs to be said, obviously there are lots of people living in poverty for whom, you know, they need money, right? It's just like a very basic thing. They need to eat. They need to be able to pay their electric bill, like there's a basic line at which this conversation doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. But for people who are in kind of the, the kind of middle class and above, I think this conversation often doesn't happen because everyone's so focused on the wealth gap and how it's growing, a truly important focus. But then in, in the context of our own daily lives, there's all these questions that we just don't ask. So um, I'm, I'm really arguing that people need to ask how much is enough money? Um, Which, again, seems like a crazy thing to ask in our culture, but that for a lot of people, this quest to just make more and more money and to always think a promotion is good inherently, if it means that you make more money is actually not the case that for our quality of life and for the things that matter most to us, a promotion might actually be a terrible thing. Um, Making more money might actually pull you away from, you know, your family, things you really love, your local community, etc. So, You know, there's people like Brian Jones, who I interviewed, who was an MIT business grad, got a a big offer um, to work in finance and and spent a sleepless night really considering it and then decided instead to work at a place called Self Help, um, which does just incredible work around consumer protection and helping low income people access um, good financial services. And, you know, in his case, he w- he knew he was going to be making a choice that disappointed his dad. He knew he was going to be making a choice that would, you know, confuse a lot of his peers from MIT business school. But he also knew that he was going to feel um, like he was more on the path um, that he was meant to be on from like – and he happens to be Christian, so for him it was a religious calling in a, in a certain way. But I think for even those of us who aren't religious um, – you know, there's this sense that we know, um, in the words of theologian Frederick Buechner, who I love, where our deep gladness meets the world's deep need. You know, we come alive at that intersection, and if we can find work at that intersection that still allows us to, you know, pay our rent and feed ourselves, maybe that's a better choice than the job that you know sounds fancy and pays a lot of money, but ultimately is not at that intersection.
7: That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then
3: Wow. So, one other thing I have to ask you about this. um, You know, I know that throughout the book you've you made reference to uh, to your daughter, and you know, we're talking about financial decisions. So, I I knew that this wouldn't. There's no way I could get through this conversation without asking you about this. Um, What are your thoughts on the current state of education, and how do you think about it for you know for for the perspective of your own daughter, considering that we've got this incredibly uncertain future ahead of us?
2: Yeah. Well, and I actually have two daughters now. (laughs) I, um, I the book was published in September and my second daughter was born in late July. So I feel like I was birthing a lot. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Yeah. So I, yeah, I've been thinking about this so much and actually I've been thinking about it, not only in terms of kind of education, the straightforward way we think about it, but really in terms of my, I feel like parenting has deepened my ethical angst because I see the way in which, particularly among like white elite parents, there's this, this idea that in the same way that I was just talking about, that you can never make enough money. There's kind of this underlying assumption that you can never spend enough energy, time, money on your kids, that your job is to just pour all of your resources into them. And, and on the one hand, I feel that, right? Like I'm obsessed with my daughters. Um, I just cannot get enough of them. I also, of course, want to throw them out a well the toddler out the window sometimes so like have a realistic relationship with her but you know I am obsessed with them I want them to have every awesome experience in the world but I'm also really clear that I'm at this juncture where my cho- my personal choices about my kids and the way in which I pour my resources into them are directly related to the continued injustices in the world and in this country and it doesn't show up anywhere so much as with regard to education right so I have my oldest daughter is three. So she's in preschool. Um, and I have to start thinking about where is she going to go to kindergarten? Where is she going to go to elementary school? And, and I live in Oakland, which has, is known for pretty bad public schools. And a lot of the elite parents around here, like hustle to get their kids into very specific charter schools or pay for private school, etc. So I really am feeling this, this strong sense of, okay, where is the conversation about the way in which white, and I use that as kind of a stand-in, but kind of white elite parenting is at the root of why our public education system sucks. Because we have this huge population of people with a lot of resources who are pouring it all into making sure their own individual kids get good education rather than that the larger population gets a decent education. Um, So I'm like very alive with those questions right now. I don't have any answers about them, but the, as I've started to write about this a little bit in my Unbeing column, I've had a lot of people comment and they say, don't put your values above your kids. And I find that dichotomy heartbreaking because I'm like, on the one hand, I get what they're saying, that you could, you could choose to put your kid in a situation in which they're not going to thrive because you think it's the politically or morally best thing to do. On the other hand, I want my girls to, to witness and experience making decisions about the collective good, not always just about their individual progress. And so aren't I disservicing them if, if I'm constantly thinking about only their personal achievement? So anyway, I'm, I'm still wrestling with all of that. I think the wisest thing I can think of to do is to have that conversation with other parents so that it feels like there's a group of us wrestling with it instead of me or um, me and my husband saying like, okay, where are we going to send this kid to school? And what does that mean about who we are? as a family in terms of our values. Um, so I'm trying to find other parents that I can really have that conversation with and also have it, you know, out loud, online, etc. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm living into that answer. I don't have a, a solid one yet. Mm.
3: Well, I think that makes a perfect setup to talk uh, about ownership and community in particular, because I think, you know, those were two of the chapters that really got my attention and and sort of looking at the ways, uh, you know, people are living in situations that you never imagined before and and how ownership is drastically changing. Um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that, because I thought, you know, some of the things you described were so unique and and things that I had never heard of, like the co-living and all that.
2: Yeah, so that's actually been one of the things that that people are most interested in um, out of the book is there's a chapter about, uh, you know, ways that people are living that fly in the face of kind of the nuclear family, you know, in their big house um, out in the suburbs kind of thing. Um, and, and I live in a co-housing community. So co-housing is basically um, when you have, you know, a a sort of modest amount of units, like in our case, there are twelve units with around twenty-five people that all um, share some common areas. So we share a courtyard, we share an industrial-sized kitchen and eating area, tool shed, bike shed, garden, um, and twice a week we eat dinner together, and then once a month we work on the land together. So just last Saturday, we were all you know woke up in the morning, ate breakfast together. Um, Tom, who's in his fifties, did a reading from Wendell Berry. And then we all went out and figured out what needed to be done. So we were weeding and, you know, uh, trimming the blackberry bushes back and tying them up and um, power washing the solar panels and that kind of thing. So, um, so it's an incredible way to live. It's, it's, our community is intergenerational and it was founded as a Christian community, but is now interfaith. And I just can't say enough about the way in which, um, living in this community writ large, but also especially parenting and becoming a new parent in this community has been so supportive. Um, and it's, it's really taught me a lot about the ways in which our friendships as meaningful as they are can sometimes, you know, they have their limitations. And I mean that insofar as the proximity of living in community of kind of running into people in the courtyard has made all the difference for me at this really busy time of life. And um, there are moments when I'll be like holding myself out of my hand, thinking like, who can I call about this problem? And I kind of cycle through names and I think with each one of them, I'm like, well, she's super busy because I know she's in the middle of this thing. And like, you know, I know my brother would be down to have the conversation, but I'm not sure if we can have it right now. And I need the answer right now. You know, I can kind of always think of why I don't pick up the phone and call certain friends at certain moments. But when you live in community, you just smash right into someone and you say, does this diaper rash look deadly? And you know, your neighbor <laughs> says, no, you're fine. And you, you're you just over it, right? It's like, it's this capacity to just run into each other and get our needs met immediately has been such a gift to me. And I wish it for more people. Unfortunately, co-housing, it came to America 25 years ago. Um, it's the sort of epicenter of it is in Denmark. Surprise, surprise, but, um, it has not spread the way I wish it had. And I, you know, that's for a number of pragmatic reasons. It's like very difficult to create communities like this, both from a group process perspective, but also kind of financially and structurally, Mm -hmm. um, but also I think there's just been a lack of, of awareness about it. So I'm, I'm excited on that front. I feel like I'm really playing a role in spreading the word about the fact that this exists and also that it doesn't even have to exist in this pure of a form. It can exist in other ways. You know, a lot of people are doing retrofit, uh, co-housing where they kind of knock down fences behind their houses and don't necessarily have a formal shared space, but do a rotating potluck or, you know, people are just figuring out other ways to do it that are a little less resource intensive, um, and I'm so heartened by that because I, I just think it makes a huge difference in your quality of life.
3: What are the things you don't like about it?
2: Um, You know, it's a, it's a lot of intimacy. It's like a commitment in the same way a marriage is. So, you know, there are people in the co-housing community who I wouldn't necessarily be best friends with. Um, in some ways I don't that I wouldn't say that's something I don't like about it. Cause I actually think there's something really beautiful about living in community with people that you wouldn't choose as your best friends. I kind of like that as it's just sort of like a spiritual practice. Cause that's, you know, what life is, is like living with people you wouldn't necessarily choose. Um, but so there's that. And then actually for the people who I am closer with, you know, I have the same fights I'd have with them that I would have with any friend. So there are moments when we have to, um, kind of talk through things and, you know, relationships are hard. So relationships within co-housing are hard too. Um, on a very pragmatic level cooking for, you know, 30 people is not easy. We do that twice a quarter. So it totally the labor and challenge of that are totally outweighed by the fact that every Thursday and Sunday night, I, my whole family walks over to the common house, eats and leaves and I don't have to think about it or clean anything, etc. So it is outweighed by that. But my husband and I are still, uh, kind of cultivating our food for thirty people skills. (laughs) There we've had to order pizza once, which was a great moment where everyone was like, Oh yeah, it happens to everybody. This is your rite of passage. Like we're so glad you had to order pizza. (laughs) But otherwise we do try to make kind of nutritious meals for everyone, which can be hard
3: you know i think one of the other things that i thought was really interesting about uh, the co-housing section was you know this idea of a teenager being able to talk to somebody other than their parent about an issue that they are not necessarily comfortable taking to their parent like i can tell you there's so many things that you know i could never talk to my parents about at that age
2: yeah totally that's yeah this idea bell hooks had of revolutionary parenting um i think it's so critical this notion that you know people who are kind of like auntie or uncle figures can play a pivotal role in kids lives and it's not only good for kids it's great for the parents who are at a loss right and and I don't have teenagers yet i have you know a toddler and a newborn but on that level too it's been amazing my next door neighbor is so good with toddlers and i've had these moments where i'm just pulling my hair out and she can just redirect my daughter in a second and she's finds a ton of joy in it cuz she's Raising teenagers and pulling her hair out in totally different ways. So um, I think that's really helpful. The other thing is, is this I, uh, capacity when you live in an intergenerational community to have a different kind of perspective. You know, I have a 78 year old neighbor, single woman, Louise, who I just adore. And so I can kind of like look at her life and be like, okay, so when I'm 78, like, what, what kinds, how do I, emulate certain ways that louise lives and who she is and then i look at my neighbor across the way who has two boys in high school and you know she's in her uh inching towards her early 50s and i think okay so that's me in my 50s what do do i like about what kate's doing and i just think we so often live in these siloed communities generationally and so it can make it very hard to understand like who we want to be 10 years from now and and i find that really comforting and inspiring too
3: Mm-hmm. Wow. So I have to ask you about the chapter on attention because I thought it was that was really interesting because it it, it seemed kind of out there in terms of, you know, in terms of where it fit in. But I got it because it was something I related to tremendously as somebody who spends a lot of time writing and creating. And the fact that my next book is really about this subject that, you know, that 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 thing that I tweeted about, you know, what you spend your limited attention on will become your life. And I was like, wow, that's so simple, but so life changing. Um, So I'm I'm curious kind of, you know, what you learned about that and what sort of the important take. How does that fit into the bigger picture of, of this idea? of reinventing the American dream?
2: Well, I, when I was thinking about how does our generation's grappling with this notion of, of quality of life differ from how our parents or our grandparents might have, the thing that just felt like it flashed in my head in you know, neon lights was attention, right? Just this notion that um, you know, all of us are battling how our relationship with our cell phones, our relationship with our capacity to be present with people, um, you know, where and how we spend our energy and just the, um, the total information overload that we're all grappling with. And I felt like that is so central to how, you know, we now try to create the good life or, um, for many of us feel like it evades us is, is because we're just so overwhelmed by the amount of information we're, we're taking in. So I wanted to look at that Um, And in the course of looking at it, I found that on the one hand, I did want to think about kind of individual willpower and and kind of how do we, um, you know, individually make rules for ourselves about when and how we use our cell phones or, you know, how much we're online versus off, etc. But I also got interested in thinking of it from a collective perspective, which is why I profiled a a designer, because I thought, you know, there are ways in which all these devices are designed such that they make that information overload better or worse for us or make it easier or harder for us to pay attention to the things we really want to pay attention to. Um, so that, feels, that felt a little more promising to me. I mean, I'm, I think that you know, a lot of people are talking about attention and too often for me it feels like it becomes this just exercise in self-hatred because you feel <laughs> like, oh, why am I such a failure at this? Um, so I wanted to think more about kind of collective solutions to some of that.
3: Uh, Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think I really appreciated kind of what you said about this, this sort of feeling of restlessness that you have when you've spent the entire day, like flitting around the internet. And I thought, yeah, that's so true. Like I, it, it actually changed my behavior for this week. I was thinking as, yeah, as I'm getting ready to write a second book, um, actually starting it, I thought, you know, there, there's a few things I'm going to change based on just having read that chapter alone. And one of them was to, to actually stop that sort of flitting around and, and to shut down much earlier. And, you know, even, even sitting around watching TV seemed better than doing that
2: yeah that's so interesting yeah all the sci- all the neurological research shows that we are not effective when we think we are at that flitting around which i find interesting because there are moments when i think i'm being effective or at least i'm enjoying it um, so it's interesting that the research contrasts with that i will give you in case it's useful my my writing practice um which is That I've learned to do, and I really had to learn to do this as a mom of you know two little ones and writing this book was to turn off the Wi-Fi and take a pad of paper and put it right next to my computer, and then as I was writing, I would just write down anything that I would have googled if my Wi-Fi had been on, Mm -hmm. and then I go back at the end, you know, set a certain amount of time for myself, so say two hours, and then go back after the two hours, go through the entire list, and decide what was actually worth. Googling, like what did I actually need in order to substantiate something I was writing? And it was amazing how I would just, you know, cross out half of what was on that list. Um, so I offer it to you just in case it helps you with that second that book. That
3: is actually very useful. Um, definitely something I'm going to steal, which, which actually, you know, that, that raises some questions about your actual process. Um, uh, that, that That's one piece of it because I was very curious about your process. But, you know, you said something earlier in our conversation. Uh, actually, before we get there, let's do this. I want to ask you one more question about one specific area of the book. And that was this idea of rich um you know, where did that come from it, you know i got the sense when I, I read that in certain other sections that faith seems to have played a role in a lot of the things that you've made choices that you've made at the same time you don't seem like you're religious either
2: yeah um i'm not religious uh and i wasn't raised with any religious tradition which i think is part of why i'm so obsessed with with ritual because i i I struggle with this part of me feels like I didn't grow up with ritual. The other part of me feels like I grew up with a lot of de facto kind of ritual, but I certainly didn't grow up with a lot of formal ritual and, and I think I was missing it. You know, that's one of the things that I have a really interesting ongoing conversation with my parents about, um, who were both raised in organized religion and both kind of, um, very, you know, intentionally moved away from, from it. My dad was raised Catholic. My mom was raised Episcopalian. um, So I was raised without any particular religion, and I think while I'm grateful that I was forced to have this kind of challenging but very freewheeling um, and kind of self-made relationship with morality and ethics and... And all of those big questions, I think it's part of why I am who I am, that I, I didn't get a strict doctrine or any kind of like pat answers about those things. But I did really miss out on ritual. I, you know, I went to Barnard, as I mentioned, and I got there and there were all these Jewish girls who, you know, would would go to these incredible Seder dinners. And I would think like, oh, I wish I had a community that I could just sort of like fall into and have these these rituals that kind of kept me anchored to the earth in the midst of this like huge, weird transition that is moving across the country and going to college. So I think I've always craved um, ritual. And then as an adult, I've been pulled into officiating a bunch of weddings, which has been really interesting. So that's also, I think, led me to think about how do we create, again, sort of agnostic rituals, rituals that are that are honoring of of history and honoring of the generations before us, but also really made of, of stuff, meaning, you know, words and actions and sentiment that we feel is genuine to who we are now. Um, and I'm, I'm experiencing that all over again now that I have these kids, right? Because I'm thinking about, okay, well, in what ways can I, You know, my husband and I both don't identify with an organized religion, but how do we give them that ritual experience that I didn't have? And in some ways, that's where co-housing comes in. There is a a sense of ritual around co-housing. The other thing we've been doing at my house lately is is saying gratefuls at night. Um, And my three-year-old daughter starts and says the things she's grateful for. And it's always totally... um, adorable and weird and, you know, (laughs) nothing that my husband and I could ever name. Um, So we get to know about her inner life through that. And we all get to focus on the stuff in the day that actually went really well instead of the million things that didn't. Um, So, yeah, I just I feel like it's a ritual to me seems like a deeply uh, healthy, emotional thing to do. But I also think, you know, it links us to these bigger um, important questions that we have about the world and kind of marks big transition moments, which I think are so important. Mm.
3: Yeah, you know, So um, I want to go back to something you said at the very beginning of our conversation about the fact that you, you knew you wanted to be a writer when you were little and it, you raised a question about books. Do you remember if there was a book in particular that uh, caused that? And if so, what was it?
2: Huh. Yeah. I don't think there was a book that I can remember that caused me wanting to be a writer I was obsessed with The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison when I first read it. Um, and I can't remember if I wanted to be a writer before or after I read it. But I think that book was just like crafted so beautifully and was so original and obviously about a topic that I would continue to be obsessed with around kind of race and belonging and um you know, the protagonist was a little girl, so probably that was important. Um, but yeah, I—I I, unlike Krista Tippett, who I did talk to, I was once in a room with Toni Morrison, and um, someone said to me, like, do you want me to try to get you introduced? And I was like, no, under no circumstances do I want to meet her. I just want to, like, worship her from five feet away. Um, so I didn't speak to her, but I, I do think, you know, she, to me, embodies, like the deepest and most incredible version of what a writer can be. Um, But yeah, I was much more in terms of like who I was going to be as a writer. I think I was much more drawn to journalism and, and had a lot of experiences that helped me understand the power of writing. Um, You know, one in particular was that I, so I went to this big public school in Colorado Springs and we wrote a piece in the high school newspaper about what it was like to be gay at our school and published a, um a hotline for questioning youth and focus on the family which is the biggest evangelical christian organization in the country is also in colorado springs and they caught wind of this and they tried to shut our school newspaper down because we had done it and so i you know at at 17 years old was sitting at a school board meeting where it was like this one pew i think we must have been in a church because that's how i remember it um That was me and my high school newspaper staff, you know, this nerdy crew of kids, my high school newspaper advisor, who was an amazing guy, and like 200 angry people who kept, you know, going to the microphone one after the other and talking about how horrible this was that we published this piece. And then, you know, the law is such that it protects even high school journalists, you know, the freedom of the press even applies to high school kids. So my advisor was able to say, like, I'm sorry, you had this objection, but these kids get to write this stuff. Like it's their legal right. And I was like, whoa, okay, this writing thing is badass. You know, we can, <laughs> we can um, you know, face down 200 pissed off parents. I want to keep doing this thing.
3: Wow. You know, so one other thing I think I, I took away from from reading this is it seems to me like you're a voracious reader. Uh, like the references that you've made to, to so many books, I, I'd never I don't think I've ever read a book where you elegantly so ele- where I've seen any writer so eloquently, ah, elegantly weave together so many different uh, references to, to multiple books. Um, I'm One, I'm curious what your creative process for that looked like. And two, uh, you know, what are some of your books that you would recommend to our audience?
2: Oh, that's so nice. Thank you. I consider that a huge compliment. Um, let's see. I mean, I do voraciously read, I read a lot of nonfiction, um, on the attention, um, front, I've just read a book called mindful tech by David Levy. That's basically it, you know, it has some of the conceptual stuff, which you would also find in the organized mind, uh, mm-hmm. which I quote in that chapter, yeah. but in mindful tech, it's much more of a sort of practical approach. So it helps you do these exercises, Where you notice your own emotional relationship to your use of technology and then shift your practices based on what you're noticing so I think on a on a very practical level that's a great read if you're thinking about how you use um the internet or how it uses you as as so many of us feel Um, so that's when I would definitely recommend um you know, I was I love a book by Bella DePaolo um, called How We Live Now, which is profiles of a bunch of people living in different ways, including co-housing. But, you know, multigenerational housing, single people, like just anything that's kind of anomalous to the white picket fence way of living, she profiles in a really great way. So that's one I would definitely recommend. Um I'm just starting to read a book that someone read my book and said, I can't believe you and this guy haven't met up because um, your books have so much in common. It's called Small or small City, Slow City, Slow City. It's called Slow City, and it's about a guy who um, moves into Manhattan but tries to live a kind of Walden-like um, existence where he only works, I think it's two days a week, maybe three days a week, um, and otherwise uh, just tries to you know, live this incredibly sustainable, mindful life. So I'm starting to read that, um, which has been fun. Uh, But I'm also very influenced by even stuff like Cheryl Strayed's advice columns, um, or how to be a person in the world is a book I just read that I loved. Um, I love Wendell Berry's book, What Are People For? Um, He's just such a, a hero to me. He's an incredible writer. Um so those are just some of them. I mean, I could go on forever.
3: I, yeah, I can imagine just based on having read the book. I was like, wow. Like I, I literally was like there's I had so many places where I put stars like okay, books to buy. <laughs>
5: yeah.
3: Based on on all the things that you quoted. Um well, this has been truly incredible. Uh so uh two two last questions for you. One, where can people find out more about you and your work?
2: So I have a website, which is Courtney E. Martin. That's my middle initial, E.com, which is a great place. Obviously, you know, it's easy to find the TED Talk if you just Google Courtney Martin. I've given two, but the most recent one um, is about the American dream. So that's a great place. And then, you know, would love um, if anyone wants to read my column. um, You know, it's every Friday at On Being. And, you know, a great community there of readers who comment and discuss. And so I always look forward to feedback Um, on Twitter. I'm Court and I'm on Twitter pretty, pretty actively. Um, So, yeah, I would just love to meet readers and hear more ideas about people's reactions to the book or just, you know, their own ideas about success in the American dream. Hmm.
3: Well, I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all our interviews um, at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
2: Um,
1: unmistakable.
2: I would say I'm. I'm just getting nerdy, and I'm thinking about the word mistake within unmistakable. I think it's like someone who is vulnerable enough to be authentic about their mistakes and learn from them and shape a life uh, where the the wisdom from those mistakes is is made real and is kind of actualized. Um, cause I think I'm, you know, the older I get, the much less interested I am in any kind of sort of pure genius and the more interested I am in, in people who struggle and, and continue to kind of stay awake and try to do the work they're meant to do and be in relationship with the people that they love and, um, you know, live, live genuinely and live in a way that does allow for being, um, someone full of, of, faults and errors, but also, you know, that's sort of the, the, um, the way to transcend that is just to, to talk about it and to be honest about it with other people. And, and so to be unmistakable is actually to be publicly imperfect and still, you know, reaching towards goodness.
3: Hmm. Well, this has been uh, truly amazing. I, I really, uh, can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and oh, thank sharing you. your insights with our listeners.
2: I like this is the best conversation I've had in a long time. Thank you so
3: much. Yeah. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.